This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everyone. This is our first live show for the new year. How are you, Jane? <laughs> I'm excellent. Good. Well, thank you very much for putting the summer season to air while I was having a break. Thanks also to Teddy for the lovely summer graphics and Roger for doing the podcasts. We didn't let you down, listeners. We had wall-to-wall uh, broadcasting while we were away, but all those people were behind the scenes. I tried to clear my mind of climate change for a while. After the intensity of the Paris talks, I was getting overwhelmed with all the communications coming my way. It was so intense, but it contrasted for me with the rather laid-back attitude of lots of people I met. Just about everybody else wasn't at all worried by climate change and, and didn't seem to think you could do anything about it. And this clashed in my mind and I started thinking, well, how? what emphasis can I give to the new lot of shows? So words like restoration, rebuilding trust, reconstruction came into my mind because I thought, Now's the time for action. It's deeds, not words, as they said in that suffragette film. Now's the time for action. We've had enough negotiating at Paris. We need to rebuild our democracy, restore our trust in each other and restore the land especially and reconstruct lots of things in society that will make it possible for us to transition. So our starting point tonight will be the Paris Climate Conference and we'll talk to three people who were there, Stephen Bygrave, Andrew Bradley and Christine Milne. Are you there, Christine? Yes, I am. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm very glad to hear you back on air with us. Um, Christine was at the Climate Conference, and she's now a Global Greens ambassador and member of the board of an NGO called Climate Accountability. And I very much appreciated her speaking to us tonight. So thank you, Christine. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, good. Well, look, although um, you're the former head of the Greens Party in Australia and one of the chief architects of the progressive climate policy during the Gillard government, I'm not going to talk to you about anything about Australia and national politics. Let's just go right up to the international level where I think you are uh, probably meeting a lot of people and, and fitting in very well. Um, Chris, uh, could you tell us about your experience in Paris and do you think that the dynamic has changed at all? Uh, yes, I was really pleased to be at the climate talks. I wanted to go because uh, I felt like it was a critical meeting to get uh, the level of ambition increased beyond 2020 out to 2030. And I wanted to get a feel for what was going on because, frankly, I have been pretty uh, demoralised by the very slow progress of the climate talks compared with the science, which says very clearly that two degrees is not safe, that we need to be rapidly trying for 1.5 and getting there and getting off fossil fuels. And when you know that from the science and then you see these ad hoc incremental agreements, it gets pretty depressing. But So there's good news and bad news out of Paris. And um, the good news from my point of view is that an agreement was reached. Now, that sounds like a really low bar, and it is, but to get um, your 195, 96 countries signed up saying, yes, we agree, we must act on climate change and we must do it soon, to get them to agree that we have to constrain global warmings, uh, and for the first time they put actually in the text um, the words well below two degrees, which hadn't been there before, and they included and pursue efforts to limit temperatures to 1.5. So we got 
an indication that they know that they have to go much harder on the level of ambition. And to get them to do that was all that civil society and business and the legal profession need to get the signal to get going. Because this is what gives me optimism, is that for the first time there was a sense that Governments just need to agree and send a signal that we're going to do this and then get out of the way mm-hmm. and let those people who can and want to get on with it get on with it unimpeded. And that's really the biggest risk now is that governments will throw all these booby traps in the way to try and prop up fossil fuels as we all get going very rapidly on the transition to 100% renewable. Mm. Well, look, I think everyone can see that the Paris Agreement was sort of the lowest common denominator, but um, you mentioned the change of dynamic before from incremental changes to how do you see it going now? Well, it has to be really significant change, and the fact that you've just had the International Renewable Energy Agency meeting in um, in the Middle East just in the last couple of days, and that's really about implementation of Paris and. We've had incremental change uh, at the political level in terms of these agreements, but there's actually a revolution going on in terms of the technology, and that's what's uh, really interesting, that you've got solar having now come so far down the cost curve, wind down the cost curve, to the point where renewable energy was where the major investment was globally in the last 12 months. Uh, you aren't seeing the, the stranding of fossil fuel assets much faster uh, than we anticipated and we've been warning them that this is going to happen and it's now happening. Uh, so that is really encouraging. I guess one of the things I'm concerned about out of Paris was there was a great hope amongst um, those of us campaigning on the climate, the NGOs, the legal profession and so on, uh, and the scientists, that there would be a commitment to decarbonise by, well, I would have liked 2050, but, you know, even if it was later than that, that the words decarbonise would be there or net carbon zero would be there. Mm. But, of course, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, kicked up and would not hear of those words being in the text. And so what is in the text is a bit like, um, you know, the Humpty Dumpty. When I use a word, it means exactly what I choose it to mean, (laughs) nothing more and nothing less. So in the text it now says that there needs to be a balance between anthropogenic emissions by sources and removal by sinks uh, in the second half of the century. Now, that does give me some concern because uh, whilst we want to interpret that as meaning net carbon zero and an equilibrium, uh, I've had enough experience after 25 years in politics, one of the worst words you can ever hear is balance because you know that the environment always loses when they invoke balance. And this sentence is also in the context of sustainable development and eradication of poverty. And so you can immediately see the hands out for the rent seekers from the fossil fuel industry for money to go into carbon capture and storage Mm. or... Um, geoengineering, all kinds of things, rather than getting on and getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies and getting into the renewables. So I see that as something we have to very clearly define for ourselves and make people understand that this is not a delaying... These words about balance are not a delaying mechanism for the fossil fuel industry. Right, because before Paris we had the Kiribati president and Ote Tong on the radio and he, you know, had this Suva Declaration Pacific Islands form calling for no new coal mines, you know, really simple English words like that, not um, weasel words. So I think that's important not to get down the path of being so obscure that no one really knows what, what... is promised. But Christine, I have uh, Stephen Bygraves here who's the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions and he has a question for you. Stephen. Hi Christine, we met in Paris. Uh, you, yes. were, you were there with uh, the Mayor of Byronshire um, and it was oh, great, yes, great right. to have you on that panel. And I guess um, the question was really around, as you were saying, the, the, you know, the way forward for, for people and communities. I mean, if you could comment maybe on your sense of what the mayors were saying about a thousand, you know, a thousand mayors signing up to 100% renewables, 
um, real momentum, I think, happening at local level. And that, that was certainly very inspiring for me to see is you had these very visionary statements from the world leaders, over 160 of them, but you also had an amazing amount of momentum happening on the ground. Absolutely. And in fact, um, action at the local community level and local government level around the world and cities, as you rightly identify, is where we're seeing remarkable shifts because they can tend to get around national governments. Now, um, you mentioned a moment ago um, the president of um, Kiribati. Now, uh, Bill Shorten went to Kiribati and basically supported Adani, as indeed the federal government has supported Adani. Uh, you are going to continue to see state and federal governments propping up the old fossil fuel sector. But cities don't have to. Cities can bring in all kinds of mechanisms for increased cycleways, for example. They can bring in um, a mechanism to buy renewable energy from cooperatively owned um, solar farms, for example, or wind farms, which, in fact, the uh, mayor of Byron uh, has just... The, the council at Byron has just done uh, to enable them to get around the National Electricity Market Framework rules, which are so restrictive in terms of expanding the capacity for ordinary people to set up their own cooperatives and get going on renewables. So... Uh, it's, it's incredible to see what cities are doing, everything from switching over their street lighting, redesigning uh, buildings and their civic spaces. Um, it really is a case of democratising the transition or the revolution by, by bringing it back to the local level. But having said that, you still need state and federal governments to get out of the way and stop bringing in restrictive measures. And we've seen... Just this last week, uh, in Nevada, for example, in the US, they have brought in incredibly draconian measures to try and prevent people from leaving the grid and or earning any money from their solar installations because they're trying to prop up the old networks. We see exactly the same around Australia uh, as state-owned uh, distribution and transmission uh, companies are struggling in the death spiral that we always knew would happen uh, they they borrowed money, they've built stuff they don't need and now they're trying to prevent the community from going to renewables because they need to, to prop up their old business model. So there's a lot of... Um, Australia is sort of not a good example at a, at a national and state level of, of um, progressive policy, but there are pockets of local government. Clover Moore spoke um, on behalf of the City of Sydney I know Melbourne's doing some amazing stuff and councils around the country. The CEFC has funded some local government areas to change over their street lighting, for example. Uh, so there's lots of really encouraging examples. And for me, it was just that sense for the first time, up until Paris, people were depending on government, thinking it's up to government to whether we succeed in this battle against climate change. And now... I get this sense that the community, business, uh, scientists and um, and the lawyers are all saying, look, just get out of the way and let us get on with it. And I really get the sense that the exciting place to be is actually not in politics but in civil society driving this and that's why I'm excited to be in this space. Well, that brings me back in with my question, Christine. You were there in a state of emergency in Paris, and I know a lot of people who still went there, you still went there, and uh, I think they were very brave, the Australian ones, the guardian angels, who kept appearing dressed in these you know, haunting costumes and with music. I just saw YouTube videos about that, but there were lots of other manifestations there. And it seems to me that the cop conferences wouldn't really happen. The governments of the world wouldn't really get together unless civil society was actually pushing, saying this is serious to scientists, saying this is drastic, you know, we must move. And so um, I'd like you to tell me a bit about civil society there. Um, did the state of emergency dampen them down, do you think, or did it transform them into something new? Well, it definitely dampened things down because the um, uh, state of emergency meant that the march couldn't go ahead, for example. And the march is always a real highlight of the climate cops because you get, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands at the big ones out marching and it really does demonstrate to the world 
the level of commitment. Well, that wasn't allowed. But having said that, there was that very inspiring demonstration with the empty shoes to just dem to, to show these are the people, you know, walking with people in Paris, if you like. And around the world, other uh, countries all staged their marches to be in solidarity with Paris. Yes. So in many ways, other places supported Paris yeah. rather than the other way around, which often happens with the cops. But um, there were um, First Peoples there who were very uh, prominent in calling for social justice. And this is really important on climate finance. Uh, this is one place that I think civil society really needs to get involved. Otherwise, we will see governments using climate finance as another mechanism for corporate welfare. Yes. In other words, when they put millions of dollars or billions of dollars into green finance, what I don't want to happen is them say, oh, look, we will put in so many billion, but it has to be German technology or Japanese mm, technology yeah. or Chinese technology or whatever... And it has to be a German project, Japanese project or whatever, and the profits flow back to that particular country and that particular company. And local people are not even consulted about the scale of the technology, what they actually want, or any opportunity to buy into it so that there's any sort of collective cooperative ownership. And what we have seen in the past is First Peoples get thrown out of their forests uh, land taken from them and handed over to developers and so on. Well, we have to make sure with the renewable energy revolution that we do, that the principles of social justice are incorporated into this massive rollout of renewables and decentralised energy around the world. And that's a part of the job that we've got. Yep. Uh, to make sure that that does happen. Right. Well, we, on 3CR we've had, you know, a lot more of those sort of people speaking on the air. We've had Maori people, people from the Philippines, people from the Carteret Islands who are now trying to relocate some of their families and send food back to Carteret, which will soon be uninhabitable. So we've had a big emphasis at 3CR on that. One of the speakers I heard was a forest activist, and she said that one of the best ways of preserving forests is really to preserve the right of the people, the Indigenous people in the forest to stay there and to manage the forests. And I know forests have been a big interest for you over the years. And I'd like to know, um, you know, while the Paris conference was on, the burning peat forests of Indonesia and Borneo were causing emissions like equal to the entire USA economy, apparently on some days. And we're still logging and land clearing here. I'd like to know how close are we to a binding agreement, you know, on about carbon sinks in forests, for example, or empowering Indigenous people to manage them? Yeah, well, I'm glad you raised that because I was going to make this point to, to people listening. When you read the Paris Agreement, you have to also read the Paris Decision because the two go hand in hand. The Paris Agreement is legally binding, right? Mm. The Paris Decision, that is the president of the COP, decision that he put to the COP to um, to ratify, sorry, to adopt the agreement has a whole lot of things in it that are not binding, right? So what they did in a diplomatic sense was anything that they had disagreement about and couldn't agree on was taken out of the legally binding agreement and put in the preparatory, in the uh, prologue paragraph mm. to the decision. So you need to read it in that way. So on forests, forests turn up in the legally binding part of the agreement in Article 5, but it is really um, wishy-washy language because it just urges the parties to conserve and enhance as appropriate sinks and reservoirs as referred to in Article 4.1b of the Convention, which mm. does include forests. So it urges to conserve and enhance as appropriate sinks and reservoirs, and clearly forests are and forests mm. are included in that. But, you know, when you get in the case of Australia, you know, they're about to start logging in the Tarkine again and mm. destroy the habitat of critically endangered uh, cray the, the giant crayfish there. They're still logging in Victoria, driving the uh, 
you know, the possum to extinction. Mm. Um, you have got logging all around Australia and you just think to yourself, and land clearing being allowed again in Queensland. So there's so nothing in this agreement can't get to... get back together, you know, no. um, these palm oil companies no. uh, that are draining the, the forests and, and setting up these scenarios which has this burning going on in, in Indonesia and so on. Mm. We have got to take responsibility for it here in Australia and forest has largely dropped off the agenda and we have to get it right back on because looking after those mountain ash forests in Victoria, the forests in Tasmania, that is a huge carbon, not only a huge carbon sink, but fantastic habitat for our critically endangered species. So that is an easy first step. If Malcolm Turnbull was serious, he would revoke the decision on Adani for a start and secondly, stop the logging. Yeah. All right, Tristan, we're nearly finished, but could you just tell us a bit about the global greens? I hadn't heard that the greens all get together in a sort of global sense, and you're now a global greens ambassador. Um, what do they think of Australia's performance at Paris, but also, you know, what other things are they doing together? Well, the first Global Greens conference was held in Canberra in 2001, bringing together Green parties from all over the world, and it was there that we ratified the Global Greens Charter, which is the basis for the principles that you can't call yourself a Green Party anywhere in the world unless you uh, agree and adhere to the principles in the Global Greens Charter. So we're the only political party in this century which is globally organised on exactly the same principles. There are now Green parties in more than 70 countries. Taiwan's election was on Saturday. Uh, South Korea is in March and we'll be in in those contesting South Korea as well as we were in Taiwan. So we're right around the world. And so at these meetings we get together because there are Green MPs who are ministers in governments. I mean, for example, the Deputy Prime Minister of Sweden is a Green and she played quite a prominent role in the talks. So one of the ways in which... Uh, I can uh, access the negotiators, for example, who are in various government delegations is through the Global Greens Network. And at every climate meeting, we have a breakfast and get together and seek one another out and discuss what's happening in one another's countries. I can say that overwhelmingly, they just cannot believe what is going on in Australia. And that was one of the, the roles I had, was to impress upon them that Australia really is the climate pariah that it appears to be because they always want to believe that we're better than we are. And, of course, at these meetings, you get um, uh, Foreign Minister Bishop standing up saying how she's committed to trying to get to 1.5 and you hear Greg Hunt saying how he wants 100% renewable energy. And I have to tell them, these are the very people who slashed the renewable energy target. These are the people who tore down the carbon price who want to abolish the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and who are backing every fossil fuel subsidy and coal mine that's going. So that shocks them because you've got ministers saying one thing and the reality on the ground Mm. uh, a different thing. So the Global Greens Network uh, is incredibly important to um, bring the truth of what's going on in countries around the world to the attention of people who are in positions to be able to question the outcomes uh, and the negotiations at these meetings. Well, all right. Well, I didn't... I'm really pleased to know that there that is that level of action. Thank you very much, Christine, for talking. I know you're a great supporter of community radio and grassroots activists, and I know you're speaking to a very big audience tonight who will appreciate your words. So thanks very much for speaking to us. Thank you. I look forward to continuing to engage with you because it's going to be exciting as we implement the outcome of power. I hope so. Thanks very much, Christine. So that was Christine Milne uh, speaking to us about the Paris conference. Now, I think we've got time for a little sting and then we're going to speak to Andrew Bradley, who's a media communicator. You're listening to 3CR Radio. If you're not absolutely furious, you're really not paying enough attention. The world's a shambles. 
So come along and join us in being active and together we can make this world a more ethical place to live. Uh, here we are again, listeners. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Now, our next, next guest was also in Paris. His name is Andrew Bradley. He's the Managing Director of Holdfast Communications, and he's a specialist in media and corporate communications about climate change. So welcome, Andrew, to the Beyond Zero Radio. Thanks very much, Vivian. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. What does it mean to have this imperfect agreement uh, well, look, I, I, I guess I'd probably um, uh, uh, stop you there in, in terms of that, that description of the agreement. I would agree with you that it's not a perfect deal. Um, I think that anything that happens within the United Nations context is always bound to have a degree of, of imperfection. Um, I think that probably that's something that's come with sort of uh, age and weariness um, probably over the last decade or so for me is understanding that um, if we go looking for perfection in international deals, we'll, we'll find ourselves forever lost in the forest. Um, so, so I think we can, we can describe this deal as a momentous deal. It certainly isn't a perfect deal. Um, but one of the things that I think I've, 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 I've personally taken, taken um, I guess, some, some issue with in, in some of the coverage that's resulted post-Paris yeah. is the notion that because the agreement is non-binding, it's not meaningful. And I would, you know, let your viewers, your, your, your listeners know out there that there are endless binding United Nations treaties which themselves are largely meaningless. Mm. So, so, so the idea that, you know, needing to have a binding agreement would somehow change the world instantaneously is, is simply not true. Um, what did we see? What did we see during the COP? What did we see after the COP? We saw the share price of coal companies around the world involved in pure play coal fall off a cliff. Um, what the Paris Agreement does is for the first time signal to the world that a new industrial age is upon us and that governments from, from every corner of the planet have agreed to those sort of central tenets of that agreement that climate change is real, it's here, it's hurting, it's going to be incredibly costly, and we must act. G'day, We've never g'day, been in a position Andrew, like that before. G'day, Andrew. It's, it's Steve Bygrave um, from BZD as well, joining Vivian on the show. G'day, Steve. How are you? Yeah, look, uh, yeah, and, and I think in addition to what you were saying about coal prices falling off a cliff, I think what we also had, and I'd, I'd be interested in your comments on this, is you know, 100% renewables is, is suddenly the new normal, and so is zero emissions. Although zero emissions didn't make its way into the negotiation text, there was so much conversation about that. There was a 1,000 mayors signing on to 100% renewables. So I think we've got a real shift that's happened in Paris. So your comments on both the coal story but also the 100% renewable story and also on the zero emissions story, you know, these being the new normal. I'd agree with that entirely, and, and, and what I would say is that the incredibly strong focus on realising that we must shift urgently our global energy systems, the, the, the deep understanding, and I think a now deep public understanding that a change has to happen, and it has to happen quickly. And as you say, one of, one of the things that I was really taken with, and I'm a, I'm a former South Australian person, born and bred, don't live there any longer, um, but certainly the Premier Jay Weatherall of South Australia was in Paris and working with a range of, of mayors and governors and, 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 and state leaders. Um, the role that cities, small states, small provinces can play um, simply can't be understated. Um, what we have ahead of us now is a job for all of us. Um, we, for the first time, have, have a signal which says... These are the rules of engagement. We have an agreement. We have a set of promises. And again, we've never been in that position before. And, and, and Stephen, you know better than I do, but certainly the, the economics around renewables are absolutely clear. Uh, over the weekend, I was involved in, in assisting to push out materials from the International Renewable Energy Agency, which made very, very clear that doubling the share of renewable energy around the world would increase global GDP. Mm. It would increase human welfare. 
Um, these are things that are not just good for the planet, they're good for people, they're good for economics. This is what the future looked like. Um, and, and I think that, you know, after I fell off the plane back in Australia, after spending a good part of the last three years working on these issues, um, it did take some time to sort of get my head around the idea that we suddenly now have what, I, what I'm lovingly calling the big stick, which is we suddenly have, have a weapon to be able to use against politicians and policymakers of all political persuasions to say, you agreed to this, you made promises, and every single government policy decision in every single country around the world that signed the Paris Agreement must be held account in accordance with those promises. And I was just listening to Christine Milne then and, and, and agreeing entirely. How on earth, how on earth in this country we could think that a development like the Galilee Basin or a development like the massive oil, you know, oil reserve off the coast of South Australia is compatible with a 1.5 degree pathway is, is absolutely insane. Um, and, and these are the things that civil, that civil society will now move to do ruthlessly. Andrew, could I just come back now to the fact that you are a a media communicator, you're a communications specialist and I know you give advice to corporate and media people about how to frame their message and I'm very interested in that. We've got this um, agreement in Paris which will not take us to 1.5 degrees of warming, it'll take us more likely to 3 or 4 degrees warming, which is we've got to ratchet up the ambition but I want yes, to know how can we communicate the agreement in Paris as you have as an opportunity because the media, I think, and the culture in general, people I talk to, um, keep focusing on the pain and the difficulty. They say it's the environment or the economy. They say it's jobs versus saving, saving the climate. And it's just this sort of arid way of talking that sure, makes sure. a lot of people I speak to say there's nothing you can do. Over Christmas, people said, oh, there's nothing you can do. You know, I'm ridiculous what I'm doing. But I sort of feel this is a marvellous opportunity, a marvellous challenge. It's only... Kind of, can you help us? Sure. So there's something that every single one of us can do. The idea that we are all powerless in this equation is is a nonsense. We can shift our money. Um, we can move. We can move our superannuation that we all have in this country. Um, you know, from superannuation funds, which continue to invest in broad-scale coal infrastructure and gas infrastructure and, and oil infrastructure across Southeast Asia in Australia, into funds which don't. We all can make a decision about where we bank. We all can make a decision about how we travel. We all can make a decision about the sort of things that we're going to spend our time doing. These are all things we can do. Um, there, you know, of course, there are people amongst us who can spend time doing things like going and chaining themselves to, to coal loaders. Um, certainly a pretty pretty valid approach in, in, in my book. But in terms of the, the, the communicating the message, it is a... Um, the argument that's put forward that um, dealing and responding to the great challenges of climate change are somehow um, anti-economy anti are, are pure nonsense and, and are continually proven to be pure nonsense. Um, I would encourage anyone out there to look at the new climate economy report, which is headed by the former Mexican president, uh, Calderon, uh, and has an, has an amazing range of commissioners on it, including um, our own Australian Sharon Burrow, I'd look at the work that the Asset Owner Disclosure Project uh, is doing. Um, to, to, to suggest that runaway climate change is not going to cost us um, in, both, in both immense human costs and immense economic costs... Um, is just simply not true. Mm. Um, the faster we move, the less it costs. Yeah. Now, well, yeah. Go on. Well, I, I think um, Christine Milne made it clear that there's a new dynamic coming out of Paris, and you're sort of exemplifying that. But um, it's about cooperation now and action, no, not too much more negotiating and talking. It's action now. And I think fossil fuel exporters like Australia and Indonesia and Saudi Arabia, you know, we're in a special club of people who, who are all into obstruction and the rhetoric of denial, but that is, is something that the citizens of those countries must not permit. And I'd like you to know how we can communicate, you know, when this denialism and obstructionism comes up in our public cultural debate and discourse, how can we 
explain that we want to unite with the world and stay below 1.5 degrees? Sure. So now I would respond to that is what was fascinating to me as somebody who's been in and around these issues for a long time is that what was really, really clear in the in the months up to Paris, and we certainly as part of a sort of a broad international network of, of people like me that work on these issues, um, was that we for the first time had a real coming together of faith leaders from just about every faith on earth. We had business leaders from almost every business, you know, every major business organisation in the world. We had unions. Um, we, we we had NGOs. We you know you know you know we had this amazing coming together of people, all agreeing on a simple set of principles. We need change. We need it quickly. And what I would say to you is that in a country like Australia, for example, we are blessed with having a democratic system where we where we can vote. We we can make decisions. We can vote. We can get out there and encourage our friends about who to vote. We should measure. We should measure if we, if, if we all really, really care about the change that I think, you know, the, probably the people listening to this program care as much as I do about, um, use that vote wisely. Um, you know, write letters to the paper telling them that, you know, the, the article that they've just published is factually incorrect. Ring up the radio station when there's some, you know, stooge from the fossil fuel industry saying the sort of things that um, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing, you know, you, you say that you're hearing. Um, these are the sort of things that we, as free citizens we can do. And, and just as a final point, I think talking about Saudi Arabia is fascinating because even the Saudis have been saying of late that, you know, um, that there, is a, there is an end date for oil. Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, and here we are in Australia talking about opening up massive, massive new coal fields for which there is simply no demand around the world. The economics don't stack up. Mm. Oh, all right. Well, my last question to you is is really about something different. It's about I was hoping there'd be something a bit like the Marshall Plan that would come out of this for the um, underdeveloped countries. Because if you travel outside the safe, you know, air conditioned world that we live in, there's a lot of people who are going to perish with climate change. If the, the heat waves that we have here, you know, people fall de- dead in their thousands. It, without you know proper houses without uh, proper water and certainly no air conditioning and fans and refrigeration and although the united forum united nations forum was a terrific act of collaboration it's not really clear to me how we will make this transition to um of energy transfer to poorer countries and uh, collaboration across borders and this trans um, you know, money transfer from the north to the south, as they say. How do you think that will happen? Well, I think there are, there have been a range of um, you know there have been a range of attempts and proposals put forward around some of that. Obviously, there's the Green Climate Fund, which would seek to um, you know draw money largely from uh, you know a range of wealthy countries such as ourselves. Um, uh, we have we have various proposals on the table. There's a thing called the carbon levy project, which would seek to um, which would seek to essentially kind of levy fossil fuel producers and use that to assist uh, developing countries. But um, you know the the science indicates, and, and certainly what we're already seeing around the world is the sort of impacts that you're talking about, particularly human health impacts, um, are already happening. There are people dying in the street. Um, that, that this is this is this is a, this is a reality for for people around the world, and that again says to me that you know we all have a responsibility. You know, you you me, Stephen, Christine, mm. all the people listening to this program, we all have a responsibility uh, to to do whatever we can to bring about the change that's necessary as quickly as we can. And, and the last thing I would, I would I would just sort of add to that is that um, the. the the thing, the thing that I find most fascinating is that it's technology that got us into this problem in the first place, and I largely think that it will be technology that will that, that that will assist us. So, so the sort of advances, the rapid advances we are seeing, both in power generation, in storage, in new discoveries, um, that's happening day by day by day, will only increase in speed and frequency. Um, you know, um, just you know. Uh, 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 um, um, so solar power is cheaper in India to produce electricity right now, today, than from coal-fired generation. Yeah. That's a simple fact. So the, the economics have changed. Mm. Uh, the politics have changed. Um, 
And it's hard not to see how the world hasn't changed as a result. And what I would say is, you know, as a communicator, um, that, that the sort of work that we have to do now is empower people with the sort of messages to say, we've all got a job to do, every yep. single one of us. Yep. Oh. And we now have the big stick to do it. <laughs> well, I say that every week. I, I, I want everybody to become an activist at all sorts of different levels. But thank you for saying it again. Um, uh, this was Andrew Bradley speaking to us from Holdfast Communications, who's just been to the Paris Conference of Parties. And I very much thank you, for, Andrew, for speaking to us tonight. Very happy to talk to you, and any time in the future you'd like to chat, very happy to come on, and thank you for having me. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, now we've got Stephen Bygraves with us in the audience, in the audience, in the studio. <laughs> Not an audience, he's been a participant. Um, I'm, it's, I'm sorry, listeners, it's a bit tight. I'm, I'm always trying to cover so much, and uh, we all want to... Uh, one day I'll just have a really leisurely conversation and um, it'll probably be much better radio. Anyway, Stephen, look, welcome to you. This is Thanks, the, the B, uh, Beyond Zero Emissions uh, CEO. He was at Paris presenting Beyond Zero's work. Could we start, Stephen, just by perhaps a bit more leisurely, tell us your experience at the Paris COP, the tone of it, you know, the big experience of it. Yeah, look, thanks, Vivian. It's, it's great to be here. It's also fantastic to follow Andrew and... Um, Christine and the points they were making about Paris. I think that they captured it quite nicely. I mean, in, in the sense there was a lot of ambition. You had for the first time 160 world leaders in Paris on the one day making statements about action on climate change. On the other hand, as Christine and Andrew have both pointed out, you've got actions being taken in those countries which are inconsistent with the statements that were made by those world leaders in particular in our own country where Malcolm Turnbull didn't sign on to the fossil fuel subsidy initiative uh, that, that New Zealand were proposing, uh, uh, you know, still a Dani mine going ahead. All of these policies and, and steps being made by world leaders which are inconsistent with the statements they were making. Secondly, um, for the first time, and you, you asked this question of Christine, you had a proportion of one to two in terms of government representatives versus civil society representatives. So you had 10,000 representatives in Paris from civil society and you had 20,000 representatives from UN member governments. So half, the proportions are half to one of the number of uh, civil society representatives versus a uh, government representative. Now, that's outstanding, and it's quite uh, amazing. Christina Figueres, the head of the UN Secretariat, said this is the first time also that this has happened. You had an amazing uh, sense from business community. You had Richard Branson, Bill Gates, Mark uh, Zuckerberg, all announcing billions of dollars being invested towards clean energy and technology of the future that will bring us out of the climate crisis. You had um, Prime Minister Modi from uh, India saying that solar is good for humanity. Mm. Not coal, but solar. I was there when he launched, along with President Hollande from France, the International Solar Alliance, and I heard it for myself. Uh, Modi, mm. saying that solar is good for humanity. We had, um, uh, I think, uh, you know, an amazing role that civil society made. Although France and Paris was in a state of emergency, as you said, we still had the climate human chain, which I participated in. About 10,000 people participated in that, which was a... Um, a chain of people between uh, Plus Republic and, and Nation, all linking hands, environment groups from around the world, um, interfaith groups, uh, people from developed countries, developing countries, and a huge sense of solidarity. This was the day before um, the, uh, the climate conference um, started. Um, although there was a state of emergency that was allowed, um, Christina Figueres also briefed NGOs the day before, saying that uh, you can, you have a right, a right to be here. You have a valid role to be here. I encourage civil society to be here. 
just tell me if you're going to do a demonstration so we don't have to, you know, so our security guards don't go crazy and put you in jail. So, so there was a real sense of collaboration and a recognition of the role, the strong role that civil society has to play at these conferences. That's great. Well, I, I haven't heard a description like that. And Christine said something a bit different, but I think it may have transformed people because it was so serious. You know, people have been murdered not so long before that, and I think it created real seriousness because people were brave to go there. And and those ones, I said, the climate angels, they were on the front page of the age. You know, Deborah Hart, we've interviewed them, and, and just the sort of poignancy of that, you know, bringing out the artistry in people because it's not just nuts and bolts and weasel words it's also artistry and uh, creativity needed isn't it yeah soulfulness really and i I think president tong from kiribati described this very well i was at an event where he spoke and he said we've got to remember this is about people it's actually not about targets and numbers Mm. and commitments it's actually about people you know his country is uh you know on the front line as he describes as is tuvalu as is tokelau as is the Marshall Islands, those countries are on the front line and humans and their livelihoods are being impacted right now. Right. And that was, uh, again, another uh, big element of the Paris Conference. One of the things that came up um, in one of the podcasts I listened to was that the Pacific peoples really, they feel they've really been done over and the chance of you know, deep-sea drilling, for example, in the Arctic, that has been put off for the moment but it could still come back. Um and one of them said that they're frightened that geoengineering will be, you know, they're open oceans. It's, it's as if it's an empty place and no one's there, that they'll be used for geoengineering. Now, our name is beyond zero emissions, and we believe in, you know, some co- carbon dioxide has to be removed from the atmosphere. What, what discussions were in Paris about that? Look, um, we obviously, at every event that, that I spoke at, we're talking about the importance of sequestration not geoengineering, and there was a real fear amongst many in the civil society uh, groups that were there in Paris that geoengineering was making its way into the uh, discussions uh, by politicians. That's what I wanted to know because I thought it must be there. And, and, you know, we continue to push the line that we can do this with existing technologies. We don't have to wait for some technological breakthrough. We have the existing technologies to deal with the climate crisis now. We don't have to wait. And sequestration, biosequestration and land use uh, will play a key role, which is why the land use plan that we've done is such a critical piece of the puzzle. The other point I'd make about Paris, and, and I missed it in the, in the in the first question, sorry, Vivian, and that I'm saying this to Andrew again. For the first time, I think you've got 100% renewable energy being the new normal. You've got zero emissions language being the new normal. There is no reason why every climate group in Australia and around the world should be campaigning in solidarity for 100% renewables. This is now mainstream. This is, you know, Beezity pushed that boundary five years ago and was as, it was a very radical idea. Now it's normal. Yeah. Same with zero emissions. This is language being used by Greg Hunt, by yeah. Julie Bishop, yeah. by leaders around the world. You wouldn't have got that one or two years ago. Zero emissions now is the new normal. So let's put in place a transition plan. Let's use Beezity's plans. Let's use blueprints to highlight how this transition is going to happen. What are the policies in year one? What are the policies in year two? What are the policies in year five, in year 10, Mm. that will take us to zero emissions and to 100% renewables? Oh, I would love to have a great big barometer at Flinders Street Station, you know, this year's emissions reduction, you know. We must hold our... next year's 2017, how much we've got it done. We must hold our leaders to account on on the statements they made in Paris. And where are the plans to implement their statements? Okay, well, Stephen, another issue is gas. Now, Beyond Zero Emissions has been talking a long time about gas is a fossil fuel and the methane uh, fugitive emissions are in not inconsiderable. They, there's quite a lot of them, leaky pipes, and at the moment in California they're having a methane outburst there of stored gas that's absolutely forcing evacuations of people. Very dangerous to the local population, but you can imagine how dangerous it is also to the climate. But at the moment, Australia is going gung-ho to export LNG. And although we've talked about no new coal mines, no subsidies to fossil fuels and all of that, I think there's not much knowledge about why gas is also to be 
constrained, regulated and wound down. Can we talk to that? Yes. Gas is a fossil fuel. Gas is um, comprised of methane, butane and very high global warming potential gases. We have to stop burning fossil fuels and gas is a fossil fuel. It's not the clean, green, cheap fuel that we were told it was uh, five, ten years ago. I think people are starting to get that. The Alternative Technology Association has a huge, uh, you know, no gas policy, basically, you know, uh, sim- very similar to what BZD was pushing through its uh, buildings plan. Other NGOs now are, are, are moving in this space. I think m- you've got more people realizing that gas is increasingly expensive and it's a fossil fuel. And I think uh, just as 100% renewables is the new normal, I think no gas will become the new normal in another year or two, but the sooner the better. You have to keep pushing that. Right, that's why I just asked you because it seemed to have gone under the radar for a while. Now we'll come to the mayors. You you had a lot to do with these mayors and we talked a bit about before about the local government being an area where we're getting some movement. I like to quote from the mayor of Vancouver, um, Gregor Robertson. He said, you know, we know it's possible to reach 100 percent renewable energy they've done it i think they've banned coal and tar sands export infrastructure from the ports of that beautiful bank vancouver harbor they've banned any export from there and um they have also the fastest growing economy in canada so it's a win-win situation could you please talk about i've got several aspects of it what would you say the best examples from the mayors you met and the local governments that you've heard about on say transport Look, maybe just one step back before that because I came through Vancouver on the way back from Mm. Paris and I met with the city of Vancouver and I talked about their plans for Mm. a green city and for 100% renewables. They're actually at 93% renewables and that's large hydro. There is a lot of uh, community opposition to building more large hydro so they're looking at how solar and wind in particular from the northern parts of British Columbia can meet can help them get to 100%. Yeah. So Vancouver is moving very, very quickly. They, they've got a lot of work, however, to do on transport. Mm. Uh, they've got a SkyTrain, which, which links the airport to the city, and they've got a fairly good bus network. But they really have to expand that uh, the, uh, the, the rail, the light rail system, so it's better connectivity with the bus, bus network. They're looking very seriously at EVs. And obviously, in a Just town, ex- explain what that electric is. vehicles. Yes, and uh, obviously, in a town where you've got ninety three percent renewable energy, when you charge your vehicle, it's it's going to be also based on renewable energy. So they've got to do more work on EVs. Councils have to do more work on public transport infrastructure and improving the connectivity between light rail buses and and being able to walk and cycle more mm-hmm. freely. So I think just coming back to Paris. A thousand mayors at Paris committed to 100% renewables. Mm. You had an amazing event uh, co-hosted by um, Ban Ki Moon, the head of the UN, and the mayor of, of Paris. And you had a huge commitment. You had so many events with mayors talking. This is where the rubber hits the road. Mm. You had Richard de Natale saying this is where the revolution will occur, at community and at local government. Tell us some inspiring examples. You know, a city that's doing well. We had uh, someone from Durban last year talking about green belt right around Durban, all these new green jobs, biogas, you know, digesters, really. You've got got amazing amazing examples from Stockholm. We've got uh, community energy projects uh, in Denmark and Sweden in particular where you've got this community energy revolution, bioenergy, uh, using dairy, uh, dairy waste uh, to produce methane that's then piped to produce energy that will power small towns. And you've got wind turbines, solar, uh, uh, community solar plants that will power small towns. You've got mayors signing up to transform their vehicle fleets to um, 100% you know, electric vehicles. You've got towns, uh, Denver, um, you've got towns, Boulder, Colorado, which are already 100% renewables. As I said, Vancouver's close, but not quite there. But you've got other towns like Boulder and Denver who are already there. They are leading the world. What was very clear is we need to break the barriers for communities to be able to take all the steps they can to zero emissions future we also need to identify the barriers at state and territory, provincial and at national level that are in place. You know, 
distributed energy barriers, network barriers that, that constrain individuals to mm. produce their own energy. You know, you've got, as Christine said, you've got states in the US banning people going off-grid. Now, that's not the kind of action we need if we're going to be moving to 100% renewables right. and, well, and zero emissions. What about building codes? Did you see any um, city mayors talking proudly about how they'd changed their building code to make it easy to... Um... You've got some action there, but a lot more required, to be honest, mm. um, Vivian, particularly at the commercial level. Our, I talked about our Energy Freedom Initiative with, with various mayors and councils, and they are very interested in what we've done on buildings in Australia. Mm. It's just the model, isn't it? You need to have a model that people can go and see. I think you told us about Sri Lanka's building a, a model city and, and perhaps people need to see it. Is that, that it? Because, I mean, I know with high-speed rail, when we were talking about that a few years ago, everyone said to me, oh, but it's great high-speed rail. I've been on a high-speed rail system around Europe and once you've seen it, I think then you, you it can It becomes a new it. normal. Mm. And, and that's exactly what we're doing in Byron. We're developing a model. I've been talking to other groups internationally where they want to go zero emissions, they want to go 100% renewables. What's the model? How does that happen technically? And what's the community process to allow that to happen? Right. right. And I, I understand that these mayors are very happy to link up, you know, partner. And I hope that this is, again, part of the transfer to um, less developed countries, you know, the transfer of expertise, wealth and help so that, you know, the uh, poorer countries can just leapfrog the fossil fuel era. We keep using that leapfrog. It's a sort of frivolous word, but it just seems to me that that's where those cities that have achieved something can now then uh, adopt another city and, and build. It is all about transfer of information and knowledge. The mayor of Byronshire and I were involved with a, 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 a number of mayors and councils all sitting around the one table, sharing ideas, sharing uh things that we are doing, sharing the various barriers that are in, in the way. And uh, it was amazing to see that collective uh, source of information that can be harnessed yeah. to, sh to show how Byron can learn from Copenhagen, how Vancouver can learn from Sydney, how Boulder can learn from Taiwan, mm. uh, because you had people from Africa, Asia, uh, Europe, um, and the US and Australia all there around the one table sharing ideas fantastic Great. stuff all right well we'll have to leave it there thank you very much Stephen. we've had an interesting show um thank you to our paris talk guests we all have a lot to do this year and i thank them for shining the way um christine milne andrew bradley and Stephen bygrave and if you'd like to hear more about the paris conference from Stephen bygrave you are invited tomorrow night tuesday the 19th of january to kindness house which is where beyond zero emissions has its office it's at 6 p.m tomorrow night and that's in brunswick street number 288 it's near the corner of Johnson Street and Brunswick Street, so just catch a 112 tram down there. Um, thank you very much. There's always lots of action, and I suggest you check out Solar Citizens this week. That's an activist group that's having a big conference in February. Uh, you might like to check out Solar Citizens, so not too much homework. Thank you again, Jane. Thanks to Roger. Thanks to Glenn, Miwa, and Teddy. And thank you to you listeners for listening. Next week we're going to have Robert Mann and a psychologist and also an expert on low-carbon travel. <laughs> so that'll be fun. Good night, everybody. Must be really mean to keep that bird from
must be an enormous bastard to stop the birds from trying.